0: it's my p- great pleasure to introduce our first guest all the way from sunny UK. Is it sunny there? Yes, yes, yes. it's sunny there. Yeah, okay, <laughs> it has been sunny here today, but it has been very great at the end as well. So um, it's something to we'll be able to say the sunny UK. Um, so all the way from sunny UK, Annabel grew up in the Kent countryside, getting lost in fantasy worlds and scribbling stories in notebooks. Before focusing on writing, she worked in law, so many lawyers seem to go into the market. <laughs> and she realised, um, I love this line, that there wasn't nearly enough magic involved. She is the author of the New York Times best-selling Scandar series. And I think so I've got I'll go there. Oh, we're talking about you. I'll be a friend. Um, So, New York Times bestselling Scandar series, and book two, Skandar and the Phantom Rider, was published this month, which is extraordinarily exciting. Congratulations. And Annabelle is going to be in conversation this afternoon with Jenny Keeling um, from The Youngest Son, ably filling in for Claire. You'll do a fantastic job, Jenny. We'll <laughs> so if I can welcome Annabelle and, and Jenny to the very uncomfortable-looking school. <laughs> I'm really sorry.
1: Thank you very much. I'm very sorry that Claire couldn't come. I know it's I'm a very poor second to one of our most beloved children's book writer. So I apologize on her behalf. She was very sad she couldn't make it, but she's been traveling all around Australia and picked up somewhere, very dreaded COVID. So I have brought with me Claire's questions that she wanted to ask Annabelle so that um, she still is a part of today and gets to ask the things that she would like to ask you about your gorgeous books. And I was very excited to find out because the first thing I said to Claire was, what does AF stand for? (laughs) because <laughs> I'd always just known you as A.F. Stedman, so Annabelle. So it's very exciting for us to have Annabelle here today at The Younger Sun, We've sold so many of your book one and book two was very highly anticipated, so we're very excited. So shall we start? Yes. All right, so the first thing is um, I just thought, my first question kind of gives a little bit for those people who haven't read book one, no spoilers, but just <laughs> a little bit. So Skander is 13 years old, living with his fairly depressed father and his very brilliant and loving sister, when he's given the unexpected opportunity to hatch his own unicorn and learn to master magic, which sounds very dreamy and full of sparkles and (laughs) Um, lots of pink and rainbow colours, but nothing like this. These unicorns are bloodthirsty, wild and very unpredictable, which was a fantastic um, spin on it for me because I wasn't aware until I started it. Fabulously different, they were going to be, so that was great. <laughs> they bond strongly with their um, unicorn writers for life, and if they don't, well, read the book and you find out a whole lot of drama happens <laughs> when they don't bond very well. Um, from where did you conjure up these volatile versions of unicorns, not our usual sparkly friends? Um,
2: I think so. I had the idea about nine years ago. Um, I was kind of walking on the road, and I just, I'm, I'm a visual writer, so. I just had this image of a, of a boy riding a creature and I was like it's not a dragon, it's a bit disappointed by that, <laughs> um, yes. not Ooh, a phoenix, it's uh, but it was, it was a, a unicorn and I, I don't actually like unicorns very much, you know, it sounds <laughs> odd now, that, <laughs> but, but I, I never really liked the rainbow kind of sparkly, the way that they have become because they have not always been that way, you know, in kind of very early manuscripts, they're these kind of quite ferocious creatures. Um, And so I thought, has that happened? You know, I I started asking questions about it. They've got a horn, you know, you wouldn't cuddle a rhino. um, I don't think most of the time. And I I think, yeah, I started thinking, what if they weren't the way that we expected? And I started playing with this idea that what if we found out that they were real and deadly and lived on an island off the coast? Because I think with mythical creatures are so interesting because they're Mm -hmm. in our consciousness. They're everyone sort of, if you say unicorn, someone you have a picture of that in your head, say dragon. I think as a child, I always thought like, potentially dragons did live in Wales. I just had this idea that they lived there and like maybe everyone was just hiding them. And I think- from on the Welsh flag, is yeah, there a dragon on the- Yeah. And so I think with unicorns, I thought they're even more likely to exist because they have so many similarities. They horses, which people bond with. Um, so, yeah, it all kind of like spiralled out of control from that, to be honest. <laughs> and now you're stuck with Loving Unicorns. Yeah. No, I mean, I
1: like mine. <laughs> <laughs> Your version. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, Skanda's story is going to be told in how many books? Five. Are we going to get? Five. five yeah. Brilliant. Um, was that the plan from the beginning? Did you have that whole five-story arc?
2: Yeah, I know. Uh, I I did, I, and I'm so happy that I you know, that I'm allowed to write the whole the whole series. I think um, I when I pitched it to the publishers, I said it's going to be five because they, they the characters start at 13 years old um, and they grow up every year. Um, so by the time it ends, they'll be kind of ready to go off into adulthood, I suppose. Um, and there are five elements, and you might have noticed that it's quite fiery. The first one, watery second book, so. Um, and then we have Earth, Air and Spirit, not necessarily in that order, uh, we're not allowed to say which one comes <laughs> next. Um, but yeah, so I like the idea of that as well, there's five years of training at the school and there's five elements and so I've found that kids have been really responding to that once they've seen the second one come out, they love to guess, you know, are oh, they going to be five, you know, mm-hmm. so um, so that's been um, that's been lovely, but yeah, it was my original plan, which is hardly ever happens, you know, they hardly yeah. ever let you do exactly what you wanted,
1: but yeah, five is, five is what it's gonna be. And following on from that, um, you know, often we get uh, stories with, with three main characters, you try kind of story, um, but you've got four. Yeah. Which is, which was great. Um, how did that come about? Did you always have that in your head or? Yeah, I'm, a-
2: for me, with this writing the first draft of Skandar the Unicorn Uniponty, um, the characters in the world came first, to be honest. Um, and I I really built the other characters around this idea of balancing each other out in friendship group. And, you know, they're, they're all very different. Um, four of them live together. Um, and, you know, when where one, one of them isn't so strong, the other one maybe makes up for it. And they sort of, they end up looking out for each other in that way. And so four just seem to balance, it's, you know, it's, and kind of on, on the island, as well that the spirit element is banned when, when the, uh, the story starts and so they live in quartets so each of them have a different element and so the idea is you know you're you're you might be a fire element person but you want to learn from other people it's it's not like in, in harry potter where you all get put in the same mm. house together you get put four of you together and you have different personality traits and that makes you stronger i think that was always an idea that i I wanted to have in the book, um, but for a lot of main characters, I have <laughs> to say, to manage, and I always want them to be developing and growing up and having different things going on, um, and so, yeah, sometimes I'm like, I wish I'd done three, <laughs> but no, I'm not, I like it, and there's two boys and two girls, which is nice, because um, hopefully the book will appeal to both, um, even though Scandal's the main character, but he's not necessarily always the most heroic one,
1: yes. so and that was important to me yeah. as well. It did, it did stand out straight away when I, I loved the bit where they were told they had to make groups of four with one person from each element. It's fantastic. It's not just, you know, all the Gryffindors in one room. And it sort of flowed through the whole book that you need all four to make a complete, yeah, more uh, well, magical. <laughs> change <laughs> uh, the world. <laughs> change the world, yes. So you need a bit of everyone's you know, strengths, Yeah, which was really lovely the way that played out in the story. Um, in the Unicorn, Leafs, this is one of Claire's questions. Skanda discovers that he's a spirit wielder with skills that are actually banned, and he has no one that can teach him. It's important for an author to put their character into all sorts of trouble. How did you feel about making life so difficult for Skandar? Oh, he does have a tough
2: time. Um, yeah, I think I think I felt okay about it because he he meets his these friends, and really, yeah. when he's on the mainland before he gets to the island where the unicorns are. Um, he, he's bullied at school. Um, he has a sister who sticks up with him, but then he ends up leaving her behind. Um, and so for Skandar, having those friends is like a really big deal. So it kind of balances out the sort of stress and drama that's going on with him because they deal with it together. So I don't I don't feel too bad about it. Um, and actually, doing school events, uh, the kids always want to be spirit worlders <laughs> yeah. uh, because it's not allowed. You know, it's the one that's illegal. It's the exciting, dangerous, secret one. So, in a, in a way, I guess some, he gets he gets a good deal in that way. and He gets to be the,
1: the special one. Yeah, and he gets two. He gets kind of two houses with him being part of the other. Yeah, so he he pretends
2: to be a water wielder, yeah. which, um, you know, is a lot. Is which is very dramatic. clever,
1: because you've still got your four, even yes. though there's five. Yeah. I, yeah, like, that was <laughs> impressive. <laughs> it was very clever. <laughs> and the other characters, his friends, are so fabulous because they're all quite different. And um, that even at towards the end of the first book, you can already see, you know, some of the things that were a bit latent in their personality starting to come to the fore. Um, I'm thinking our silver, beautiful silver yeah, um, unicorn and just the development of their friendships with the unicorns and the friendships all over is just three. As a teacher myself, those books are so fantastic for that to talk about the different friendships and even though you may not be all that similar to start with that, you know, once you get into the nitty gritty, there's so many fantastic friendships that can form yeah. and help you along the way. Um. You've set Scandal's story. I actually start when I started the book, I actually thought it was set in Australia because there was something that tipped me off. You called, oh, you called it, um, I think it was at school and you said they were in u six. It was something that was very Australian. And I thought, oh, I didn't realise she was Australian. (laughs) And then when I realised it was set clearly on your side of the world, um, I changed my thinking. But uh, it was funny because I'm used to American style of talking yeah. about school, Yeah. and so clearly our schooling, you it know, uses nice. more similar words. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you've set it in the in an on an island between England and Ireland, yes. somewhere yeah, somewhere, around there, um, with Margate actually named. Yeah. Um, why did you choose to put a fantasy island next to a real world, I actual think... country? <laughs>
2: yeah. I
1: think I like, I, as, a, as a as a reader,
2: when I was younger, i always loved this idea of, you know, like, like a nanny where you might be able to go through your wardrobe and you might that, you know, the number of times I went into the back of a wardrobe, you know, <laughs> even when I was quite a lot older, I think, and um, <laughs> yeah, this dark material so it was like with Philip Pullman, you know, imagining a demon and it might be there and kind of, I think that I like that slight questioning of. But what if, it, what if it actually is true? And so like, if they can see it on a map and the real places are there, then it's kind of, it builds into that. And I think that's always, it's really important for me in the mythology of this, that it all makes sense because it's one of the things that, um, you know, so far in my experience with the kids reading it, that they, they really engage with because they, they like working everything out. They like the building blocks of it. And they want to know how everything works because they are imagining themselves there. Yep. And that the whole idea of, the, of being destined for a unicorn is that he gets 13, you take an exam, anyone can be destined for a unicorn. Doesn't it matter where you're from, doesn't matter who your parents are, like, it doesn't matter. You, you pass that test, off you go to the fantasy world. And so I tried to make it feel as real as possible, like the only difference between our world and that one is that 15 years ago, we found out that unicorns are real and deadly. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's why I chose to have it in the real world. and I liked. This idea that everyone everyone knows that it exists, but like some people can't access that magic because they're not destined for it, and that idea of being left behind is really prevalent in the book as well. Because I in I remember reading Harry Potter and the, they no one else knows about the wizards, and I thought, oh, yeah. I, and I'm kind of like, what if they did though? Yeah, um, and you know you get that a little bit with um, I think Arpetunian sort of knows about it, and that idea of being left behind, um, and, and Scandal's sister is a year older than him. She doesn't pass the exam and she really wants to be a unicorn rider, and so that is something that's explored kind of as the series goes on as Good, well.
1: Precisely. Yeah, yeah, so she actually <laughs> really has her own, her own chapters
2: in in chapter two, yeah. in book two, like flashes. So
1: it's quite get... heartbreaking, but you yeah. know, she's clearly so desperate, to. Yeah. adores the unicorns, and she just can't, not allowed to wear
2: it. Yeah, and I think for that, I sort of channeled that. I know I'm the oldest. Um, sister as well yeah and that I know that when I went to university my my brothers really struggled with that because I went off and they were still there and that idea that you don't get that yet And I think I was sort of tapping into that and how they felt about that too
1: yeah it was um, I, it, yeah that really touched me especially because he was very, Escandar is very aware of how much his sister was desperate and that he got to do it and she didn't yeah so there's always that kind of not wanting to rub it in her face, but also trying to share the excitement and that everything, yeah. he did really well the way that she oscillates between being really depressed and desperate still, but also really excited for her brother. They're yeah. such a beautiful, close um, sibling. sibling yeah. So I'm hoping this is of It's been lovely finding out that a lot of my favourite characters are going to have bigger roles, <laughs> like Jamie. <laughs> so uh, that was very exciting. Um, moon, oh, Moonlight Dust, Eagle's Dawn, <laughs> Silver Blade, Red Knight's Delight, Falcon's Wraith and Skandar's Scandal's Love. How on earth did you come up with all the names <laughs> the unicorns? And how did you keep them straight in your head?
2: Yeah, so I, it was one of the first things I wrote down when I first mm-hmm. had the idea. Um, I started writing in a notebooks um, and while I was supposed to be doing my law exams. <laughs> um, yeah, I still, have, I still have that notebook and lots of the names made it in. I think I wanted them to have like elemental names. Um, I guess it's drawn a little bit from source names as well. Like the fact they have two and then they have one of the names, it's like their nickname yeah. as well. So Scandal's Unicorn, Scandals Luck is scandal, um, through a lot of the book. Um, but now I do loads of school events and as part of the event, we make a unicorn. And so I get loads of ideas from the kids. And I tell them I'm going to steal them yeah. and they love it. Um, and so they all vote on the names, but it's such a good way of seeing the kinds of things they want to read in the book. Um, mostly the names are really dark that they come up with, which is great because it is, you know, it's kind of scary and some of it, not too scary, accessible, but... Accessible scary. Yeah. Accessible scary. The kind of like, yeah. And, and so they like coming up with these names. And so I've got this book that, where I write them down. and. Um, you know, I, I, I do use them because it's what they want to read. Humans.
1: And that's clever because I'll have to read all five to see. Yeah, exactly. Sort
2: of exactly. And some of them, <laughs> but books nice. too, there are some unicorns over really? there from, from schools. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's good to have help because yeah. And I like reading um, nature writing as well, like nonfiction. So I often write down words in there um, that sort of feel like they might fit. And then I put it with another word, like. Fear or nightmare or something. Um, <laughs> and uh, and I end
1: up getting them that way too. Yeah, I must say, the, um, the mentions of all the blood around their muzzles and stuff quite regularly throughout the book is like, oh yeah, they're they're actually not yeah. fuzzy, fuzzy unicorns. Their mouths are dripping with animal paths and blood. <laughs> so, it, so it's great yeah. for those kids who you know, want to scare themselves a little But
2: Yeah, it was one of the things, the balance was something we talked a lot about during the editing process because. You you know you want them to want to read it. You want them to want a unicorn, but you also need to remind them that they're not that they are the non-fluffy kind yeah. um, because that's that's what pulls a lot of them in yeah. that idea of turning it. So I think yeah, the balance was was trying to strike the right one between kind of not putting them off the unicorns
1: and the humour too. Those unicorns, those unicorns are funny. <laughs> one um, farts a lot, <laughs> and every time it makes me. Smile. It's um, a hilarious way of doing it and then lights his own farts with his fire breathing so it's um, there's some really lovely you know amongst all the seriousness there's some really fun moments and Scandar's unicorn also I think is has a cheap very cheeky side yeah yeah he's a bit of a trickster yeah so you know that, as you read you get more and more of the personalities of the unicorns as well which is very lovely as it builds up so I can only imagine my book five no, have. Yeah, very fully no. formed personalities.
2: Yeah, I mean they don't talk, which was something I didn't want to do, but I, I did want them to have, you know, their mm-hmm. own personalities as well as the as the kids having them too. So.
1: Well, that's yeah. one thing that you, one of the devices that you've used, the connection between the bond between them, which us um, yeah. discovering he can... Um, Access, well, in book one, access some of the emotions yeah. of his unicorn is really lovely because you do start to then get a bit of that communication.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, I wanted to build in that idea of like emotional kind of responses to things as well. So it's, yeah. it's, it's a way to get Scandal's feelings across as well, because um, it's the main character sometimes that's difficult. It's in third person, yeah. but it's still, it's easier when scoundrels kind of sensing his fear rather than saying, he's really scared. <laughs> um, so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's
1: good. And the, uh, and the way that the unicorns are able to enhance the emotions of their rider, I found really fascinating as well. The fact that he would get an extra burst of happiness, he was feeling a bit down, that these unicorns yes. give him an extra burst. I thought, well, don't we all need one of those? <laughs> yeah. just someone to just, eat, you know, give us a bit of an injection of, you know, bravery or happiness yeah. or whatever it is. So um, I love that. I had not sort of seen that as something, it <laughs> was like a new thing and I was like, Ooh, what had I done? Um, I want to make sure that I get all closing because she's probably listening. Or, <laughs> I mean, we'll listen later, so <laughs> to make sure that I do, she doesn't tell me off later. Um, oh, she wanted to know, can you talk about the architecture and the landscape of the island and why you made some of the decisions, such as the fact that they live in tree houses? Yeah. Um, and it took me a while, but I worked out why the trees have... Um, um, uh, armor, around the trees it took, at the beginning I was like oh I wonder what that's." And then I've worked out once I met the uniforms why they have that but um, can you have, talk to that why the students are in group houses or you know how you set up that world and
2: why? yeah I think um, so I think with the tree houses I basically needed the people to be off the ground partly because the wild unicorns which are not bonded are really really bad really evil
1: well they're fat um,
2: they're, they're pretty bad <laughs> Um, and they're kind of immortal, invincible, very angry at the world because they're alone. Basically their rider hasn't, hasn't caught up with them. They, they never um, kind of met their destined rider. So they, they stick around forever and they're not happy about it. Um, and so there, there are stampedes. That's kind of part of the part from the book one. Um, and so I knew I needed people off the ground. And I thought actually at the training school, that makes sense too, because the unicorns are around and all the tree houses are metal as well. So it's kind of like to protect from the fire fire blasting um, so yeah that kind of worked in that way and then I mean I like tree houses anyway I love yeah. trees also <laughs> so I was just like I'm just going to go with this um, so it's kind of a big network of tree houses there are kind of like ladders and bridges um, which makes it feel kind of makes it feel fun as well mm. kind of like a safe space for the for the kids um, but yeah and then the the kind of there are four elemental zones as well because it's all based around elemental magic so you know you've got the out from the capital, we have the fire zone, water, earth and air, which you don't see much of in book one, but in book two, you see a bit more in book three, a lot more. Um, and so, yeah, that was fun imagining what these zones are like and they kind of have the elements built into them. You know, the water zone is kind of full of rivers and um, it's got, it's kind of got like a lot of boats on it, people going along and there's kind of a floating market. And so that was a really fun thing to do. Um, and yeah, and the hatchery itself, um, where the eggs of the unicorns are kept um, it has it's kind of like a i imagined it like a viking burial mound it's sort of got a big grassy top and it kind of goes like this and it's it's kind of feels like it's part of the island i think that's when i'm building it i think i often come back to the elements but and I want for everything to feel natural like it's always been there it's been there for a long time um, so yeah that was that was one of the first things i made the hatchery i think mm. um in my head because i needed somewhere for the eggs to be um, basically, <laughs> safe. Yeah, it's funny writing a fantasy book because I think a lot of things almost um, turn up because you need a solution to something um, or during the editing process, someone will ask you, well, how does that work? And you're like, I don't actually know. Um, so, or you sort of know, but it's not on the page. And so you yes. you start thinking about it more. Um, you fill in the gaps and that's how things things grow, basically. Or they're like, oh, where do those people live? And you're like, hmm, I, I don't know yet. Really? And it's, it's <laughs> sort of like, yeah, I'm discovering it. It's like having a map that's kind of not quite fully there, and you sort of, I don't know, all like one of those scratch things where you scratch it off, I suppose. Sort of well. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, but yeah, and it's fun. And I knew, so there's a big race in, in um, the Skandar world called the Chaos Cup, which happens every year and is televised. Um, so that's what we see in Chapter One Skandar's Watching Map. Um, and so I knew, knew I needed a, an arena and a race course and things like that. So it all, it all sort of came from needing things yeah. for what I wanted to write, I suppose, um, Yeah, but it's, it's fun, it's one of my favourite bits of it.
1: Sure. Yeah, I can imagine, it's, it, it's everything you do with a child when you're making dollhouses or cubbies or yeah. anything, you're creating yeah. worlds and stuff, it must be fantastic, but you said something interesting that I hadn't really thought about, but I can imagine if the world is so in your head. I can imagine that you read it and someone else reading it might say, well, you haven't explained that, but yeah. you think it's been explained because you know it yeah. in your head, but actually realising that the reader doesn't know yeah. actually where the villagers live for, exactly. even though you do. Yeah, I would forget to put that in the book. <laughs> <laughs> That's why editors
2: are so great. Yeah. Um, and also uh, we're now at the point where I've had the same editors for three books and so we've we asked someone else to come in to read it who oh, have read it before because <laughs> yeah, because we talk about it all the yeah. time. Um, and they know a lot of background and you think, well, as someone might come to this fresh, you know, they might come in at book four coming out and read, so we need need to make sure it's all clear
1: for them. Right. And that you didn't just talk about it rather than put it yeah, in. The well, book. Yeah, think yeah. it.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Fascinating. Oh, it's fine, right? The whole process of writing fascinating. Um in *Scandal* and the Phantom Rider, the island becomes increasingly out of balance. This is one of Claire's because I've just started book two. So I'm loving hearing a few little details. <laughs> um, the island is becoming increasingly out of balance because of the wild unicorns. Um, something happening that's not great right to the wild unicorns. <laughs> there are increasingly frequent and intensifying fires and floods. Were you intentionally mirroring climate change or was that ju- just yeah, I think it was in my head, I think it was in
2: my head quite a lot when I was thinking about that flood. Um,
1: it's quite an Australian, but it's yeah, something yeah. You struggle to and like we struggle
2: with as well. And we also have had lots of floods, um, kind of, in the past couple of years, um, and I think, yeah, the, the kind of idea in that book is like, it's kind of actually the thing, the thing that is causing the, um, this imbalance, it's like a selfish thing, it turns mm-hmm. out. Um, and so there's a kind of message there about like, you know, paying attention not not doing the thing that you want to do necessarily because it's going to not benefit everyone and it's going to be bad for them so yeah that that was definitely in my head i don't think i initially set out for it but when i was thinking as soon as i started writing about you know that kind of destruction um and there's there's lots of um bits in the book about other people like taking people into their homes and like the kindness of that like you know but sometimes you run out of space kindness doesn't run out but space does and that sort of kind of showing the effects of that kind of damage on people's lives and how it uproots it and things like that, it's, it's certainly. So I think it's in, it's in its heads all the time. You know,
1: they're really aware of it. And um, it's such a, a fabulous kickoff point for teachers too. But yeah. Putting my teacher hat back on. But yeah, the yeah, off conversations, some of the glibs around things like that, that mirror some of the things that are happening here. Yeah. Another level of
2: Yeah, And I think that's why I, fancy, I like fantasy books because you, you can deal with things like that um whether it's like climate change or whether it's like being at school and being bullied or feeling jealous because your friends are friends with someone else you know that's a big theme in book two um you get to deal with that but in the, the place where it's like blood unicorns <laughs> yeah. and it's a fantasy place which feels like a safe place to be reading about and i think you can't you can often come out with a fantasy book and feel like different about how you deal with those real life problems, even though you haven't really realised. It's like a sneaky way yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> getting that in. <laughs> you so get a little bit touch braver by yeah. picking up some tips from yeah people. Were you tempted to include any other magical creatures in the story? I just, I, I, I wasn't. So there actually,
2: there are ma- some magical creatures in the zones that are like, they're like fire elementals and things like that. So they're um, So there's a, there's like this kind of salamander that sort of like gnats and gives off noxious smoke. Um, So there are some creatures that are like island based, but you'd recognize them, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, in terms of like dragons or anything like that, I was just like, the the unicorns are like the ultimate predators. And so it just didn't, I was just, it would just turn into a like unicorns versus dragons thing, which is not something I wanted to write about. So, so yeah, they're, they're top, they're top dogs. Yeah, um, And they, they're the only ones really that I'm going
1: to be writing about for now. For now. now. <laughs> I know, I love that. I love that it's, you know, there's not too many elements of that you have to get your head around. If, you know, as you said, we're building a world that we pretty much 95% of it we are. A world. And then there's the unicorns. Yeah. And <laughs> the magical island. And it, theres you don't have to suspend the leaf over and over and over again. Um, like Lord of the Rings, which took me ages to kind of yeah oh again okay, another magical thing another magical thing it's quite it's
2: yeah I think it's worked well in that age group yeah I think it's worked well for um like some parents have got in touch with me or teachers and said you know I've got children who like they don't like read they think they don't like fantasy because they find it really hard to take in all the detail mm-hmm. but this one worked for them because it starts off very familiar in in our world There's kind of a mystery straight up. And then they sort of get eased into the fantasy and they're okay with that because yeah. they're like it's not really a fantasy book. Um yeah,
1: just kids living in the boarding
2: school. Yeah, with unicorns and, and magic. But like it's ages unibon. till they you know they get to that bit and I think that's that's really nice because then maybe they afterwards might feel like they can tackle something where it's it's all a magical world. and that's my vote anyway. Absolutely.
1: Uh, yeah, definitely. Um what would you love to see readers get from your story? the what what do you love when you go to a school and the kids
2: yeah I mean I think that it's not just a book about bloodthirsty unicorns um you know that's the hook but um it's 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 a lot about kind of loving people for who they are I think you know for for Skandar he he has to pretend a lot about who he is Mm. through throughout the story um and he he sort of wants to try and hide himself um and he sort of Comes to the realization that actually his friends love him for him, um, which is a message that I think is very important. Um, and there's another character, Bobby, who is kind of also people aren't always who they seem. You know, Bob- Bobby is another main character, a girl, and she is very, very confident. Um, and she's kind of like, I mean, she's quite obnoxious sometimes, to be honest with it. but <laughs> she's fairly loud, and, but she also suffers from anxiety, she has panic attacks, um, and you don't find that out at all like about halfway through um, and then she's like hiding that and she, she shares that and like how that helps her and how she realizes actually it's okay to share it so there's a lot of that going on um, but I think also the, the messages together we're stronger essentially if we work together and we kind of fill in each other's kind of gaps or you know we, we teach each other how to be brave um, or you know on a day where you're feeling like not really up for an adventure someone else will pull you along with them and um, that kind of thing so yeah, because I, it's not really a story about hero you know Scanner's not really a hero he's the main character yeah. but they do everything together um, and they they kind of they conquer things together rather than him going off and doing it on his own which I I think is hopefully a good message that um, everything feels manageable when you're part of a team
1: yeah, even um, the f- one of the first races when his friend comes back, help, thought, yeah. he has completely <laughs> lost his race, so yeah. he was pretty hopeless. Yeah. Um, but his friend comes, they make it through, and really, Sander did pretty terrible. Pretty badly, race. yeah. It was <laughs> only his better. friend that got him through it. Yeah. So I really love that. I love that he wasn't you know, continually you know, beating the odds all the time. He, yeah, he's, he's by
2: definitely no means the best. Friend. <laughs> yeah.
1: and he, you know, friend. he's definitely not the bravest. Yeah all of them had such different strengths and had areas they didn't like about each other, but they all you know, ended up working so well together. And as a teacher, I was just thinking, Oh, I wish I had a classroom. I really <laughs> want to read. There's so many things in the book that was, um, a great you know, read aloud to discuss with kids and things like that. So from from a teacher's point of view, thank you oh, so that much. I It's so wonderful. Cause I, as a three, four teacher and you know, class six as well, it's just so perfect for, so many kids, girls and boys, I should say, with both, with the protagonists being both sexes, which is awesome as well. So thank you so much from a teacher's point of view. Um, I think I've asked all of my, Claire had a couple more, but um, the last one is what does magic smell like? <laughs> I actually found the book, it was so, uh, you know, you describe the smells and things like that so well. Yeah, um, And you know, the rushing, um, uh you know, I the of dragons, the unicorns that <laughs> don't have, um, haven't bonded with people, that could almost smell the decay. and the, Yeah. Um, what does magic smell like? Yeah, so the,
2: the elemental magic, um, it's, so it smells different to everyone. Um, so, uh, for example, like I think Skandar, um, he, water magic to him kind of smells like salty, a bit like kind of like wet hair and things like that, because he, he grew up next to the sea. Um, and then, you know, fire magic, again, it's like burnt toast because, like, his dad often would like, burn the toast and um, kind of like, or, or something like a, a firework display or something. Um, so, yeah, so each kind of rider can, like, smells the magic in a different way. And then they sort of mix together in a sort of, like, orangey, cinnamony um, yeah, <laughs> combination. I love the cinnamon.
1: Um, yeah, so, fun. yeah, uh,
2: it was fun thinking of, thinking of that and how we kind of experience smells different ways because it kind of accesses our memories as well yeah
1: well it's such a trigger and because you mentioned things that we all you know we've all burnt toast with, you know <laughs> yeah smelt that firework um it seems, it made it so easy to imagine like i, I feel like i could sell a book <laughs> 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 um, so, yeah the trees as
2: well the pine and the area. i think yeah. i love I love um, forests and things, so yeah. I think I really like Went to Town.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, It's. I don't think I've ever said about another book. Oh, I really could smell the book. But um, <laughs> it almost is scratch and sniff with the way, way you've written it. Oh, okay, <laughs> thank thank you. Yeah. So thank you so much. Oh, no, thank you. I am done. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much, and thank you for coming all okay. the way here to see us. Oh, no, so.
0: thank
1: you for having me. Wonderful.
0: It is my distinct pleasure to introduce our next two guests. Because we're jumping, remember, we're jumping and missing second. Oh, they're going to run down. <laughs> <laughs> they're going to amble gently down in the front. I actually feel like I don't need to introduce them, but I will. I will, because I want to read all of this, because it just looks, it's so impressive. And you get these wonderful stools of perch on, them, <laughs> okay. So it's my pleasure to introduce Amy Kaufman. A New York Times best selling, a wonderful phrase, <laughs> and internationally best selling Australian author of science fiction and fantasy for Adults. She is known for the Starbound trilogy and Unearthed, which she co authored with Megan Spooner, for her series The Illuminati Files, co authored with Jay Christopher, and for her solo series Elementals. You you're done with this. Her books, have been <laughs> her books have been published in over 35 countries. Her latest book, only recently released, is The Isles of the Gods, and I should be changing my slides. So that's what I'm talking about. Um, So Amy, and Amy will be in conversation with the absolutely wonderful Lily Wilkinson. Lily is the award-winning author of 18 books for young people, also doesn't look old enough 18 books, including the Eraser Initiative and After the Lights Go Out. Lily has a PhD from the University of Melbourne, very busy girl, and is a passionate advocate for YA and the young people who read it. Many of you in this room will remember she established the Inky Awards at the Centre for Youth Literature, State Library of Victoria, and was a guiding force in the centre for many years. Lily's well, latest book, also recently released, is A Hunger of Thorns, and we are thrilled to have you both here for the conference. Take up a uncomfortable story. <laughs> You have your lovely books on the screen behind you, no, so you don't have to... Yes. Oh, sorry, I forgot about the... No, I was trying to be into <laughs> to... I, I, I don't know.
3: can otherwise. There you go. Over to you. you. We're going to get that out of my back pocket right. before a tragedy occurs. Very good. Hello. Hi. Hi, everyone. Hi, everyone.
4: Um, A friend of ours uh, was in a bookshop in Sydney last week and overheard some teenagers talking about us, Mm -hmm. uh, and immediately texted us and was like, and they were apparently saying, "I wonder if they're friends in real life or whether it's just for Instagram."
3: We are not good enough at Instagram.
4: Social (laughs) media. So Amy and I have been friends for you know a while. I don't know.
3: probably
4: 10 years or so, but I couldn't, who knows? Yeah, the the YA writing world is a small world in Australia and we do all know each other. Um, But we are part of a smaller coven, uh, like a writer's group where we work together um, quite intensively. We are in communication every day. Um, We have a little online group where we post our accountability checks every morning on what we're intending to do, provide support.
3: Yeah, it's sort of a lockdown legacy. It's, um, I mean, you know, I don't need to tell any of you, um, including, you know, we all, you guys did it too. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, it's a solo sport on a good day, right? Like, it's just you and the page. But when we were really on our own, it went down. You know, we had had this little chat group on Slack that we talked to all the time anyway, but it became a lifeline. I mean, The Isles of the Gods is literally dedicated to Lily and to the the small group um, of Aussie writers who were on this Slack, because it became the place where every day you'd wake up and you'd say, good morning, today I will. And you guys know, like, you know, on a bad day, it would be like shower and, Home learning. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Lily did a lot of homeschooling. Mine, thankfully, was about two at the time. So- I don't know if that's thankfully. Oh, <laughs> uh, look, <laughs> compared to teaching a prep. Yeah, I'll at a teaching bit. a prep was not great. <laughs> but, it, but it became something really special, didn't it? Like, it, you know, what started out as you kind know, of looking to each other in, mm. you know, <laughs> separation. Yeah, it became, we had all been close before and we became very much aligned in each other's writing. Mm. It really hit the point where now when one of our books comes out, it feels like all of books just came out. Yeah. It's lovely. It is
4: lovely. It's like um, I, the, the one of the things that I've really missed since becoming a full-time writer, which I've been doing for, I don't know, over a decade now, um, is having colleagues. It's like, you know, having people to talk to every day about your work. And writing can be lonely in that way. You have your editors and stuff, but that is a professional relationship. Um, that, that is not the same as, as, like, you know, having a cup of coffee with a colleague.
3: Right. I mean, for a start, they're only in there at certain points. Yes. But also, your editor is not the correct person to run to when it has all just come to pieces in your hands, yes. you know. Yes. I'd like to give some semblance of having yes. it together. We
4: want our editors to
3: think that we are just
4: smooth sailing, incredible, yes. wonderful professionals who never have any trouble.
3: No. So we save that for each other.
4: Yes. Um, and we also uh, our little writers group and a broader group as well. We run writers, which actually we Amy organises them. Um, writing retreats a couple of times a year. Where yep. We get an Airbnb and we go and lock ourselves in and we do work. It's, it's like
3: Plato's morning school. Yeah, it's about <laughs> and at top there are about sixteen of us and there's sort of about twelve regulars and of course there's no such thing as a twelve bedroom house. So I yeah I'm I'm the bossy general who tells everybody who they're carpooling with and then. We you know, we used to have a system where everybody cooked a meal yeah. and brought it along. And, now we're lazy. Well, and also, you this situation where you get to day three, <laughs> be like, we have four days left of leftovers already, and we've got one day left to go. So now there's a giant sort of online shopping order, and it's just, I had a bit of trouble explaining it to the Airbnb people that we rent from, because there's a certain level of concern when 12 people are coming to your house. They'd like to know what kind of carnage is coming, and I'm like, uh, so what we do is we all plug our laptops in and sit silently in each other's company and type uh, and pause for meals when we do what we call lunchtime Google, uh, which was born out of the, the Airbnb we had that didn't have any internet, it turned out. And we discovered that we actually know everything Yeah, around the table. Yeah, yeah,
4: human Google.
3: Yeah, so like you were on the erasure initiative at the time, yeah. and I remember Lily saying, okay, first day that's in your pantry, go. And we were, I mean, we practically cured cancer from our pantries yes. by the end of it. Yeah. We were digging out all kinds of things you could use to cure wounds, half of which ended up in the book. Yes. It's, I was going to say, it's, it's not a highly professional experience. It's a lot of people wandering around in pajamas and Ugg boots, but gee, you know, It's not unusual for, like, 100,000 words to get written at one of these things. It's not unusual for people to...
4: And just to have that dedicated brain space away from our children and our partners and love our children, love them, but also to not have them for a few days and not have to do the dishes or do any laundry or any of that other kind of we do the dishes. But, you know, just just being there to work is, is really, really great. It is. We should talk about our books.
3: Yeah, <laughs> you first. Yeah, all right. So these are our latest. Isles came out on the seventh and Saint Vaughan's came out on the eighteenth of April. Yeah. Exactly They really are our our babies. Mm-hmm. Uh so Isles is my first solo YA. I you know, I've written a bunch of YA with Jake Christophe and with Meg Spooner and I've written a bunch of middle grade on my own with Ryan Grouden, but This is the first solo YA, which is in part because I was absolutely bound and determined that this was going to be the first solo YA. I've had a bunch of really cool offers over the years to do, you know, IPs of movies we've heard of and so on, but this was going to be the first one I was – or I was going to die trying, and I really thought that was what it was going to come down to at some points. I started this book in May 2013. And I was full of confidence and brimming with genius and I knew the characters and I knew the world and I knew the plot and it was all gonna pour out of me and it did for like a hot two chapters. And then I hit a brick wall. And I have spent the intervening decade coming back, trying again, retreating, and because I wasn't good enough yet, I had to go the long way around. In many ways, it's what, what I hope will feel like a pretty straightforward adventure run. But I realized the problem I was having is, I have to get you on board very, very quickly with an entire new world, an entire new magic system, all of its geography, all of its politics, because it's about to go to war and you need to know who doesn't like whom and why. A cast of five different point of view characters. Oh, there's a magic system as well that you will need to understand. And there are sort of david Eddings style gods that actually walk around and talk to you and, and do things. Uh, And unless I'm allowed to give you a lecture series in advance, it turns out that's quite a lot for me to get into your head in a hurry. And I had to get good enough to do it. I had to figure, I had to get my craft to a point where I could weave all of that in. And when I finally did, it was incredibly satisfying. So it's a story about a girl, she's a sailor and uh, She wants to inherit her father's fleet. She's a little ahead of herself in thinking she's ready, but that's what she's like. And one day, a mysterious and irritatingly handsome stranger boards her ship and it's commandeered for a secret mission. It turns out that he is the prince of her country and he needs to go and make a pilgrimage. And if he succeeds, then that war will be prevented. And if he fails, there will not only be a war, there will be a war between gods. And she ends up pretty much in sole keeping of his safety uh, when their ship is attacked and sunk. And things get worse from there. Just not a thing you often say after your ship is attacked, burned, and sunk. But that's really just the start of their bad luck. They are being chased by a girl who's a gangster. She has sharp suits and sharp knives, and she will cut you if that gets her where she needs to go. And it's full of stuff I love. I think the reason that I finally clicked in lockdown was because what I needed in lockdown more than anything in the world was some fun. I needed something that I wanted to escape into, that I could sit down each day in all good conscience, abandon everything that was going on, and just dive in head first. So, you know, it's got speakeasies, it's got dance halls, it's got nineteen twenties sort of. Vibes mixed with technology. It's got magic, it's got banter, and it's got a whole lot of sailing, because that's what I grew up doing. I literally took my first steps on a boat. Usually I'm speaking to a kid, so I can't say this. Um, I was conceived in Bass Strait. <laughs> I um, was only a teenager when I found that out, and it was very distressing information at the time. <laughs> it was the first time I'd contemplated my own conception. But um, yeah, the, the sea is, is who I am. And so I think one of the most ratifying pieces of feedback has been hearing from readers who say, Oh, it's just the sailing book. I have no idea if I need it. That's been a delight because I love being out and seeing i sharing it as well. Because you love creepy botanical things and you have yeah. shared that. See too, but also creepy botanical <laughs> Yeah. Tell them about your creepy botanical things. Alright.
4: I mean my journey was in some ways quite similar to Amy's in that I have wanted to write this book for a long time i've wanted to be a fantasy writer since i started which was more than 20 years ago Um, and i kept getting distracted um, by other things Uh, and part of it was was a lot of my my early books were all commissioned so i was given what to write and then i just got distracted by other stuff but i think mostly i didn't want to write fantasy until i was good enough because i love fantasy and i know that it has to be great because otherwise it's mediocre fantasy, and I will happily read a mediocre romance, but I would not read a mediocre fantasy. I want my fantasy to be awesome, and so I wanted mine to be awesome, and I wanted to be worthy of it. And I am usually a very disciplined writer. I come up with a plan, and I follow the plan, and two years later, I have a book. And that, that did not happen here. Um, I literally got lost in the woods. I, I went down a path, and I thought that this was what the book was about, Originally, it was going to be about um, an outsider artist from Chicago called Henry Darger, went down that path. No, dead end. But I picked up some, you know, I had a little basket. I picked up some flowers and some mushrooms and put them in my basket and took another path. And then I decided it was going to be about the Lost Girls of Literature. And Wendy and Alice and Dorothy were going to be characters in the book. That was also a dead end. Um, But again, I picked some more things, mosses and things, put them in my basket and took another path. And eventually, um, I found what I thought was the right path. And I finished the book. And I sent it to my US agent and she sent it off and uh, to to US publishers, I really wanted the book to be published in the US um, because of money. Um, It's unfortunate but true. um, They have more of it in America, the money. Um, Anyway, and and it turns out that sending off a book at the beginning of a global pandemic isn't great particularly if over there you are, like I am a known quantity here, but in the US I am not. Uh, and so I heard some very nice notes and then nothing for 14 months. And I was like, well, maybe I've made a terrible mistake. I thought that this was my thing. I thought it was the best thing I'd ever written. I was so proud of it. And obviously it was also during the middle of the pandemic. And I had a very bad 2020 uh, for family-related reasons. And um, like I, I really hit like a real kind of career crisis. I was like, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it isn't good. Maybe everything I thought about writing and my writing was wrong. Maybe I should get a real job um, and not do this anymore, or at least do it differently anyway. And then uh, several US publishers wanted it and it went to auction and it sold and it was great. Um, so it had a happy ending, but don't try and sell a book the beginning of a global pandemic. Turns out lots of people have other things on their minds.
3: Let us pray that it's not information any of us need to in a hurry. (laughs) Anyway,
4: uh, the book is about a girl called Maud. It's set in a world that is much like our own world, a sort of fantasy version of England. But in this world, uh, folk magic is real. It's real, but it doesn't work that well anymore. It's very heavily regulated by the government um, because You know, people are uncomfortable with the fact that some people have magic and some people don't have magic. You know, it's a power imbalance, so it's very heavily regulated. There are, like, covenant spells, so spells that registered witches are allowed Mm. to do, but they're sort of safe, nice, simple Mm. magics, and everything else is made by corporations because magic has been absorbed into the fabric of capitalism, and so as a result, it's become kind of boring and synthetic. And so you can buy, uh, you know, magical cleaning potions and magical stockings that never ladder, um, but it, it's not exciting anymore. It's not powerful. It's just, you know, it's something that exists in the world. Uh, and you can get, like, a glamour patch instead of makeup that is like a nicotine patch, but it makes you look a certain way. And you can get cheap it's ones. Not all
3: bad. No, no it would be
4: very useful. And you can get many different styles of light cosmetics. You can buy cheap ones from Priceline. Or you can buy extremely high-end, fancy ones that are, like, a bespoke made for you. Or you can buy joke funny ones that make you look like a cartoon character. Um, Sort of like an Instagram filter that you wear. Anyway, Maud is the daughter of witches. Her mother was a resistance witch uh, and was executed by the government. Her grandmother is a hedge witch, so is a registered witch. Um, And she lives with her two grandmothers and she used to have a best friend as a child. Maud had magic as a child, um, but it went away when she got her period because magic and hormones are very closely related. And she had this best friend Odette and they used to play together and they much like my own childhood, engaged in a lot of imaginative play, um, a lot of storytelling, a lot of magic. And then when Maud's magic dried up, Odette dumped her. Odette is not a great friend. Um, And started to hang out with, you know, a dangerous crowd, followed some dark paths. And one day she goes missing. And she and Maud haven't been friends for maybe four years. And Maud is pretty convinced that she's gone to this place called Sicklehurst, which is an abandoned power plant that was built over an ancient magical forest. And she's pretty sure that that's where Odette has gone. So she goes in because she still loves Odette and she wants to rescue her. And uh, it turns out that when you build a power plant over an ancient magical forest and then just leave it for a long time, um, the forest makes it go
3: very weird. About what you would think. Happens. Yeah, it's just
4: real weird. So it's very strange and creepy in there, and there are lots of very strange and terrifying magical creatures, and everything goes horribly, horribly wrong. There's lots of plants.
3: <laughs> very planty. Yeah. I mean, it's a good summary if most things be right. Yeah, everything yeah. goes terribly, horribly wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, got, I got called out the other day for being the greatest murderer in YA history. <laughs> Which I think was down to illuminate, which, yeah. you know, I mean, then the thing is, first person talking about it obviously hadn't contemplated these broken stars, which starts, which starts with 100,000 people and ends with two <coughs> um, And it has two by, like, the end of chapter three, mm-hmm. so it goes downhill real fast.
4: But, you know, that's, that's one of the great things you get to do in speculative fiction, is you can kill a lot more people than you can in realistic fiction.
3: It just, no, I mean, but for real, it it hits differently. If we write a contemporary that's set in our world and we wipe out 10,000 people, it's very easy to imagine that happening. And it's, you know, it's something quite serious and certainly not something you can necessarily leave a young reader unattended with if you're gonna do that. Whereas we've all been a bit trained that it's not a bad thing uh, to view casualties and stories differently. And I actually think that's good because story distance allows us to look at a lot of things, you know, differently. It's, you know, I always say Star Trek, you know, if the green people are being terrible to the blue people, you can just look at that fairly objectively because you are neither green nor blue, you're not attached to an experience. You've got this distance. And I think, you know, story distance lets us ask a lot of questions. Yes, exactly. as you were saying before.
4: Um, Let's talk then about fantasy. This is my first fantasy. I thought that because I read a lot of fantasy. And I've also taught fantasy at a tertiary level as well. And, you know, I thought I, thought I knew what I was doing. Like I knew it would be hard. I wasn't coming into it blind, but uh um, harder than that. Yeah, it's tough. It's
3: really tough. It's, it's... Tough to like make things make sense.
4: I, I think and people that's... have questions.
3: Yeah, yeah, I think it's actually something that surprises people quite often is that you still have to make it make sense. Yes. I think. So it's seeing the paint nod in the front room. Ah <laughs> uh, yes, the sense. Yeah. <laughs> the internal consistency you say. Yeah. People
4: being like, but but if you can do that, then why can't you just do this? And it's like
3: mm-hmm. Yeah. Because reasons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whereas I mean like with sci-fi you've you've got something to go back to. Yes. Whereas with fantasy you've you've got to build your own magic system. And I know this is something you will have thoughts on, but You know, when you build a magic system, you've got to think your way through, okay, well, one, there's got to be a price for the magic. Because if there's not a price, then uh, you just use it for everything. So it's got to be, you know, either it takes something out of you, whether that's, you know, life force or energy or whatever, or it's got to be an effort. So it is actually easier to lift that box across the room than it is to levitate it across the room. Or the effort might be front-loaded the effort might be that you have to spend an enormous amount of time learning how to do the thing before you can do the magic but there's you know it might be that you need a rare ingredient but there's got to be a price that you pay for that magic in order for the magic system you know it's an economy system essentially so you've got to have that you've got to know what its limits are you've got to know who has it you've got to know how that impacts it. I mean, that's something that we were just literally talking about, the idea that some people are left out of the unicorn game and yeah. that some people are in and that that really actually affects society. I mean, sorry, I'm, I'm going backwards now, but I just think the idea of seeing Harry Potter and being like, well, how, what would they have thought if they hadn't known is fascinating because...
4: It's one of the know. things that, that kind of irritated me the most about... I mean, there are, let's face it, there's lots of things that irritate me about Harry Potter. <laughs> it's worth big. more first one Top um best. but that that whole like the whole idea of the magical apartheid it always made me feel super uncomfortable it's like well if all these wizards have this access to like the magic like particularly mm-hmm. the medical magic that they can do to heal people it's like you're just denying that to the vast majority of the world you could do so much good in the world but you're choosing to stay sequestered is
3: well is it'd be a cool surprising. thing to examine yeah um, and so you've got to, yeah, you've got to think about who has it, who doesn't, and how to, how does everyone feel about that? You know, you've got to think about for those who do have it, how does it impact their lives? So, in um, in Isles, uh, the way the magic system works very simply is it's hereditary. It's not for everybody in a bloodline, but it's for some. If you're born with it, then you have a big, thick, green stripe, like it, like someone's painted it all the way down here when you were born and you'll have an affiliation with one of the four elements, and about the age of five, when it starts to show itself, your stripe will rearrange itself into a tattoo that reflects the type of element it is, and its complexity will reflect how powerful your magic is. Our, our two main characters are uh, Sally the Sailor and Leander the Prince. Uh, Leander is a royal magician, which means he does not have an affiliation to one particular element, he has an affiliation to all four. He is. It just makes him all the more annoying. He's incredibly handsome. He's the most eligible bachelor on the present sea. He's got this stupid boundless magic. He dances through life, has, you know, changes his outfit for every course of the meal. And of course, it's like terribly vulnerable on the inside, but we get to that later. Sally is the only person she knows who still has a stripe, like a little kid, and it's never changed. And in part, it's, the book is the story of why that is and what what that strife means, but you had a great time organising your magic system and it was completely laid out logically from the beginning and woven yes. into your book really yep. organically. Yep. It went great for you. Yeah, that's exactly what happened, Amy.
4: <laughs> I, every time I teach any master, I, like I supervise a lot of master students and I'm um, at Melbourne University, like I'm often the person who they give the fantasy to because all of like the, the fancy writers don't know what to do about fantasy. So they give it to me. And, um, and with all of them, I'd sit them down and like, okay, so you need a magic system. And I ask all of these questions and I'm like, who has the magic? What is the magic? What does it do? What are its limitations? The magic needs to create more problems than it solves. That's the most important thing. Um, did I ask myself any of those questions? No, because I was lost in the woods and I was wandering around. I was like, this feels right. I was writing instinctively in a way that I've never done before. Um, and just. Like I, I did a lot of research into folklore. It's a very, very folklore inspired story. Um, so I had all these little bits of folklore stuff that they do with the magic. And then at some point, I think it was probably you <laughs> read a draft of the book and was like, mm, so can you explain the magic system? And I'm like, no, so what? <laughs> so then I, uh, on a writing retreat, my job was to figure out the magic system. And so I started, it's called metal um, with a double TLE, uh, which I did not consider at the time, created some issues for the audiobook narrator, because it's metal, not metal. Anyway. Um, it's, we live and learn. It's fine. <laughs> I learned some things. Anyway, um, so it's metal and it is the life force that exists in all things and it exists in in, in different ways and different things. And so to create magic, you have to, um, if you have magic ability, you have something called witch hands, which means you can grab the threads of metal in different things and kind of braid them together, weave them together to create something new. Um, and so metal collects in all living things or things that were alive, but it also collects in, in things that are significant or places that are significant to living creatures, like the way that dust collects on a mantelpiece or that rain would collect in like the ruts of a road. And so things like nursery rhymes have magic in them because they've been repeated so much that you can use them as sort of like a framework to, to bind the different threads together. Uh, so I figured it out in the end.
3: Yeah, and that's one of the lovely things about our writer's retreats. Yes. It's, sometimes people will show up and be like, I will just write as many words as I can, but often we show up with a job yep. like that. Like, I'm going to figure out the magic system. Yep. Or, you know, and another of the um, the authors who comes with us is uh, Kate J Armstrong, whose book oh, Nightbirds came out in Feb, which, if it's not on your radars, I implore you to get it it's on your radars. It's so good. Gosh, it's so irritatingly accomplished for a debut. Uh, it's... Essentially magic prohibition but make it magic. Yeah. It's a bunch of girls with powerful magic who came to drink magical cocktails and take down the patriarchy and had finished their cocktails. So, and but you know, Kate came along and was like, Okay, I need to create magical props for my world. And so we all had a fabulous time one afternoon sitting around brainstorming magical cocktails and what they would do. You know, animated animating flowers on your dress, you know, yeah. give you cat ears, that kind of thing. And and you know, on a retreat, you're able to, as you work out your magic system, say things out loud. Yeah, right. And right, have people. Six clever writers, because six of us are clever at any one time. Yeah. No one's, we're never all clever together. But, you know, have people listen and sense-proof it yeah. and ask questions on the spot rather yeah. than going, yes, I've got it, putting it in your book, and then a month later going, ah, I did not have it when I thought I had it. Yeah, and
4: to really, um, another one of our writers' retreat people is CS Cat. And she uh, has this phrase called itty, mm-hmm. that she uses to be like, like the things that your brain kind of gloms onto. We also call it sparkly. And like, like yeah. that kind of thing that you can run a few different ideas past your writer colleagues and they'll be like, it's that one, because yeah. that's the one that's itty. Like, that's the one that feels right. Yeah. And sometimes when you're in it, you can't necessarily Tell see me. that. Yeah, um, Can't see what's gonna be the most appealing to a reader or provide you with the most opportunity for drama.
3: Yeah, because you are. I mean, you're telling a story outwardly in the end. You're, you're telling it for yourself, but you are also telling it for an audience. And so you're looking for that that middle of that Venn diagram that goes, what do I love? What that I love it so much that I want to sit down with it every day, but that also is going to be understood by the readership that I'm writing for. It's So, you know, I mean, it's, when we say things are itty, it's, you know, if I say boarding school stories, we're all like, well, Midnight beasts, right? You know, I mean... I grew up in a black bodies which a particular set of it. But, you know, if we say heists, you know, we say, well, you know, the... Costumes, the disguises. Right, the gathering of the team, yeah. the moment when they all come together and go, oh, you're here, I haven't seen you since Rome when you were disappearing down that drain or whatever. Yeah. You know, the moments that we particularly love and being able to run that by a group of people who not just know their own, but who have experienced at turning it out for a reader is, is really handy as well. Yeah.
4: Um, let's talk about
3: reading each other's work because yes. that is a thing that we do. That is a thing that we do, definitely. Thank God. Uh, I would never give a book to my editor yeah. that was my first draft. Well, no, that's not true. I'm about to do it on the 2nd of June, uh, but that is because I had seven months of long COVID and I am now uh, super behind on my draft. Uh, and I'm going on book tour in the UK on the 2nd of June, and by God, I'm not taking that book with me. <laughs> so for the first time in my career, an editor is actually to see something early, but, but otherwise, no, never.
4: Yeah, so we often will pass our drafts around to each other at different stages and read them. And it's a real, I think it's the, in some ways, like one of the most valuable things we can do. And it's a big thing to ask somebody as well. Like it takes a, it takes a couple of weeks usually to read a friend's book, um, to be able to read it closely enough, to be able to make comments, to, you know to be able to engage with it really deeply. And every time I do it for a friend, I always start out by thinking, I have nothing to say about this. Like, Perfect. I'm like, it's great. It's really good. I don't, I just feel like, oh, like I know they want me to give advice. I don't think I have anything to say. It's like every university lecture I ever went to was like, I don't have anything to say this week. And then i get in there and I'm like, right, I have a lot to say <laughs> uh, because yeah, there's always.
3: Yeah, there's always absolutely. Tough. And we often do Sometimes when we give a book to each other, we'll give it to each other with a specific request. Like, um, you know, with Isles, you know, uh, CS McCatt is a romance author, and I handed over and was like, read my romance. I mean, if you see anything else along the way, let me know, but can you read for romance? You know, we'll often ask each other, can you read for world building? Can you read for pace? Can you read for SYZ? I read for plot. Yep, absolutely. Um, For why did they go there? What is What is the point of that? I mean, it's usually more diplomatic than that, but it's a good question, actually. Um, And we often do our feedback um, verbally Mm. rather than in writing, Um, which I don't know, I think maybe I initiated that because I hate annotating things. Yeah. Uh, Like it came from that originally, from I spent all day at a screen, the idea of sitting at a screen for more time and having to put comments on things I mean, one, you know, it makes you want to bounce off doing it, but also I was like, I think I'm just going to be lazy because I don't want to do it this way. Mm -hmm. And so I started reading people's books and just making notes in a notebook. And then we either meet up or jump on Zoom to talk through it. But it turns out what actually happens is you then have a conversation and you start troubleshooting and you start, you know, instead of me just handing Lily a remark or Lily asking me a question, Mm -hmm. I can answer the question and I can say, okay, well the intention was this and then we can brainstorm five ways to make that happen on the spot.
4: Yeah, and I know when I read the draft of aisles that I read, I had like a half page of notes and I was like, I can sort of see the bits that I think need a bit more attention but I don't quite know how to communicate that. But as soon as we started talking about it, it's like like it just kind of unlocks something and it just and it flows and you kind of can bounce off each other. And You need a relationship where you really trust each other to be able to do that to start with. That's really important. And I also think, I always say to kids whenever I'm doing writing workshops that receiving critical feedback is a muscle that needs to be developed. Mm -hmm. You don't have it when you start. And when you first start out and you're a little baby writer or like a teenager and somebody offers you some constructive criticism, it is like being stabbed in
3: the heart. That's a personal attack. Like, it's like,
4: I made something beautiful and you don't love it.
3: Yeah.
4: It is awful. But, like, the first time I got an editorial letter for my first book, I was 24, I cried. Like, I was heartbroken to think that what I turned in wasn't perfect. Oh, my God, was it not perfect? (laughs) Um, The published book is not perfect. Anyway, but now I love it. Yeah. I love it. I love getting the letters from my editor. I
3: love getting feedback
4: from friends. It doesn't hurt anymore no. at all.
3: Because no, now it feels like my friends would never let me go out with lipstick on my teeth. They're <laughs> yes. going to gonna make sure. Yeah, And that's how it feels. It feels like your friend going, come here, babe, I'll like you. Yeah yeah, 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 I got you. Yeah, And I think, I mean, it comes from a deep trust and a deep admiration for each other's writing as well. And knowing that your critique partners are not going to try and make this into a better book as they would have written it, but are going to try and make it into a better book as you would have written it. The, The critique is like in support, but it's an interesting thing because...
4: It's not the same as the relationship you have with an editor. No, Because they have, because when it's a critique partner, the only agenda that they have is to make your book into the book that you want it to be. Yeah. Whereas an editor may not always have that. Like an editor also wants to make a book that sells copies yeah. and makes money and like there's all sorts of other stuff. And also editors are very, very like time and money poor. Like they are not getting paid a lot of money. They don't have a lot of time. They are hugely pressed with schedules. So they do not always have the time to read multiple drafts of your work and give it that close attention that it might be.
3: Yeah, and, and even from the most skilled editors I have who are fantastic at their jobs, there'll still be a question or two in there yeah. that I'm like, ah, this is because you've read it once or twice, yeah. you know, yeah. as opposed to me having read it 17 times. And which doesn't mean that I don't need to address their question because guess who else is going to read it once, my reader, yeah. so if they they will also have that question. But often the, the depth of knowledge of the book will come from your routine partner. And I think... I don't know, I mean, I have a whole head talk that I'm not gonna give about. We use the phrase thin-skinned as an insult in our society. Like we say someone is too thin-skinned, meaning they're too reactive, they're too sensitive, they get too worked up or too hurt. I'm like, what else should you be if you are trying to create but thin-skinned? You need to feel the whole world. You need to know what it is like very deeply to be you and you need to know what it is like to be other people in order to describe it. And you do that, yes, need to suddenly grow the height of the rhinoceros in order to deal with your critique. But, you know, I mean, you know, for you to write Thorns, you have to go pretty deep into like, well, what does it feel like when a friend yeah. initiates a friend breakup and yes. you didn't do it? Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff in Isles about, you know, what do you do when you thought you were gonna be one thing? And it turns out the world actually doesn't offer you that option. And you're going to have to be something else, whether you want it or not. How do you give up the first thing? And there's a vulnerability in putting that on the page because someone is going to work out that that's from your personal experience, which means someone's going to work out that there was a thing I wanted to do in life, that just didn't work <laughs> out. Someone's going to work out that a friend left Lily at some point. Yeah. Like, and you know, you'd much prefer to be bulletproof, especially to legends of readers you've never met in your life. Uh, but I think there's there's a beauty in having critique partners who see that and keep you really safe mm. while you work on it and who really help you mm. help you make it better yep yeah, Absolutely. I
4: wonder if we should take some questions oh so,
3: yeah what's our time if you like? well We're not a very washing. flexible
4: after yeah, you know, like,
0: yeah. yeah. I think impressive. we should put all this stuff Finishing up, sure. Yeah. They one, like you to sign. Oh yeah, and yeah. would love to see sign it, yeah. And there's more tea, but we certainly yeah. if
2: anyone has a burning question, I think that would be great. Who is the
0: fantasy author that inspires you most? Oh, other than each other, no. Other than each other. Other
4: than each other. For me, for me, it's Dinah Wynne Jones, who was my favourite fantasy author as a child and remains my favourite fantasy author now. Um, I feel like her ability to create worlds that are strange and familiar in exactly the right way is something that
3: i will always aspire to so, yeah sorry. i mean aren't we all for me it would be tamara pierce yes. and there's i mean this book is in a lot of ways it's you know I, I once described it as um it's tortile meets boardwalk empire but it turned out a lot of my readers were too young to know what that meant <laughs> but it's it is a love letter to Tamara Pierce and to the to the magic in her books. But I always particularly love that she created characters who felt like they could sit next to you in class, yeah. very real and very flawed. Um, and it's also got a little bit of a dash of David Eddings in it, but with a, here, yeah, but with ladies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that bothered me as a child. Yeah. <laughs> Same. <get> <laughs>
4: No, it just like so what happens is my my an agent will send a book out on submission to a list of prospective editors. Um, and some of them just took 14 months to get back to us. One had gone on maternity leave, one had, you know. I don't know, other stuff going on, schooling. Yeah. Like everyone was just doing things because it was COVID and, um, and everything was in crisis. And then there was, so one of them had gone on maternity leave and had read it just before she left and had come back and just like, did anyone pick that book up? Is it still around? There was someone else who had read it and really, really loved it and said no, but a very regretful no, but then came back again and had said, has it sold? Cause I'm still thinking about it. And by then I'd done some revisions. And she was like yes that's great and then there was another one who uh who also like had just taken a really long time to read it so like it just sometimes it takes a very long time and publishing is always slow it's it's just extra slow during a pandemic
3: yeah absolutely Uh, i mean as it happens we we do share a publisher Mm. in the us and when lily had choices to make certainly i was telling her what i thought about mine and and guess what I was saying because she came to mind. Yeah. Um, but no, because I had, had done six books already with um, the existing editor, I told her what my idea was and she bought it, um, which was a little bit of a throw my hat over the fence because then I had to write it and be like, "Geez, I hope this is what you think it's going to be.
4: Yeah, I have just done that for the same. So I've got a second book coming out next year, in, set in the same world but a different story. And then I just, yeah, sold a third one that is just an idea. Yeah, the same publisher, and and they want it by the end of September. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Let's see how we go. (laughs) It'll be an adventure for all of us. Well, that's where it's going. What's next? Oh, what's
4: next, yes. So my next one is called Deep is the Fen, and it is, uh, again, another fantasy one about... um, uh, set in the same fantasy world about a girl who gets wrapped up in a sort of weird, exclusive gentleman society slash cult called the Toad Men, which is like Freemasons, but magic and evil with toads.
3: Yeah. Yeah. My, uh, my next one will be the sequel to The Isles of the Gods, which will be next year, as soon as I've written the ending, which I will have done by the second of June. <laughs> <laughs> Watch this space, it's going to happen. Uh, I have done three school visits today before I've come here, which is why I'm all punchy. Uh, <laughs> invite me to your school to do a hoot, and I love doing it, uh, so does Lily and she is also great. Um, but yeah, then I've got another book contracted with uh, Megan Spooner as well, which is going to be a very anachronistic queer fantasy that we are having a blast writing, so. Plenty on the slate. Trilogy. Uh, that's a duology. The one with Meg is a standalone, but gee, we're hoping they'll let us write more in that world because I've never laughed out loud so much at my own jokes in my life. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Let's see how we go.
3: Fingers crossed. Well, All right. yeah. Yes? I don't
0: think if are so lucky. We <laughs> could thank both of our speakers. Yeah.